just quickly by a show of hands, uh, how many of you are now ready for the return of Christ? Okay. I, I don't think I have to ask the opposite of that question. <clears throat> well, we certainly have been surrounded by predictions of uh, particularly over the last decade of the return of Christ or the end of days. From Harold Camping, who made a prediction in 2012 and then also falsely predicting in 1994 and 1995 and, and lots of other dates, to, to, to the Mayan calendar, which also predicted 2012 and, and a few backup dates uh, just to be safe. Uh, there have been countless predictions of the end times. Certainly this year, 2020, has raised a few eyebrows. In fact, I think I have heard more people talking, speaking of the desire to go to heaven this year than any other. And so what I thought might be helpful for us is if we took some time this morning to consider our desire. What does God say to us about the last days? What does he want us to know? What does he reveal about himself? And what does he desire us to do? Here are some truths that I consider when I think about this topic of the return of Christ. First, who wouldn't want to give up uh, this life of suffering and hurt and frustration and chaos and sin and its consequences to a world without pain or tears or sin or physical loss or emotional loss. No wonder you all put your hands up. But secondly, it, it makes us consider the people that we know the ones who have thus far rejected Christ and His grace. The people we know who need more time. What a considerable balance. It's what Paul describes in Philippians when he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And Paul's life wasn't sitting on beaches drinking daiquiris or virgin daiquiris for our Baptist brethren. <laughs> it was more like oh, imp imprisonment and beatings, and abandonment, and suffering. But the joy of building up the church was of such a great weight to him. Which brings me to the third thing I consider. Some people don't want to leave because they are quite comfortable here. People who are caught up in willful sin who do not hate sin, but revel in it, who, as Jude says, pervert the grace of God for sensuality. These people do not desire an eternity with Christ. They desire long life on this earth because to them, this is their heaven. 
And sadly, this will be the best life they know if they carry on down this path. While for the believers, this present life on earth is the worst hell we will know. The second coming of Christ will not be like his first. The second coming will be a time for believers' redemption. The second coming will be a time of judgment. The second coming will be a time for Jesus to reign and rule supreme. It will be a time for the believers to reign and rule with Christ. It will be a time of seeing our loved ones who have died in the Lord. The second coming will be a time for believers' rewards. The second coming will be a time of joy and great glory. This was the longing expectation of the early church, which is why they would greet each other with this word, Maranatha, meaning, Lord, come quickly. But of course, the great Satan, back then as he is doing now, knowing that when believers in the Lord Jesus Christ live their lives in light and in reality of a second coming, they will live, we will live faithfully. We will, li- we will work diligently. We will demonstrate spiritual zeal. We will live in the joy of the expectation of the coming of Christ. We will purify ourselves with that very hope. And you don't have to have a seminary degree to know that Satan hates that. So what does he do? He will try to get the church to discount this important teaching. He will try to get us to focus on this life only. He will try to get us to deny this reality. He will play skeptical and false preachers and teachers in pulpits. And so we turn to our text this morning, where hopefully you have that uh, open and, and available to yourself, where in in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter responds to the false teachers of his day regarding the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Certainly, there are people who don't think a return of Christ is coming. Certainly, there are people who have grown weary of all the false claims of knowing the date of the end uh, of the world by so-called Christians. Certainly, there are people who think the world will just keep on spinning like it always has. But in addition to that, there is a proliferation of people today who have a false view of heaven itself and a false view of eternity. Today, people think that heaven is where most everyone goes. Unless you have been categorically evil, 
Either way, scoffers abound on both of these issues, a second coming and a judgment at the end. So Peter needs to help believers remember what is true, remember what is true, and respond to the accusations that those, uh, of those who are mocking, of those who scoff at the idea of a judgment or a second coming. In this passage, uh, Peter has three reminders to believers, which are also responses to the scoffers. First, God creates and upholds and judges by His Word. We read in verses 5 to 7, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In case you were thinking that God wasn't involved in history, How could one forget that creation took place by the Word of God? The Lord instantly brought the whole universe into being. God has always existed, but His creation of the universe marked its beginning. Here is where the the dilemmas arise for those who deny the second coming and those who want a, a heaven without God. The world is created and upheld by the Word of God. Colossians 1, Paul says, In Him all things hold together, speaking of the preeminence of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 says, He upholds the universe by the Word of His power, also speaking of Jesus. Upholding the, word, uh, upholding the world by His Word is an active word. It's not passive. He is perpetually holding the world together, meaning he didn't wind it up like a clock and then lay down for a snooze. He he didn't forget his creation. He is active in it. For those who deny creation, how can there be a heaven logically? If there is no divine creator... If it's just a big bang with, with no, uh, uh, no design element to it, then there cannot be a heaven. That, that is logically impossible. And if God is active in His upholding the world by His Word, and He has said by His Word that He will return to judge the world, then that reality must also be true. Then Peter says that God has done this before in the flooding of the earth in Noah's day, which was a judgment on his creation. So he has proven that he is a God who judges, and he has proven that he is able, and he has said that there will be a final judgment by fire, And so this is a word of warning to anyone who begins to think off the tracks. This is a word of reminder to the believers of what is true, of what it is that we believe. 
This is a word of caution to anyone who thinks unhelpfully that judgment is not a reality. Second reminder to believers and response to the scoffers is that God is infinite in his existence. Verse 8, Peter is saying, Don't forget that a thousand years in the Lord's sight is but a day. This is a quote from Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Peter is saying, do not forget that God's perspective of time is much different from that of humanity. Finite people cannot confine an infinite God to their time schedule. The day of the return of the Lord was appointed in heaven long ago. That is why when Moses asked the Lord at the burning bush, who should I say sent me? He did not say, tell them that I was sent you, making him the God of the past. He did not say, tell him that I will be sent you, making him the God of the future only. He says, no, Moses, tell them I am sent you. I am means that he has no beginning and no end. He brought creation into being, and he will bring it to an end. Peter is saying that we are dealing with the one who has not, is not divided into past, present, and future, but he is infinite in his essence. He is absolute in his dominion. He is ultimate in his power. He is transcendent in his glory, and he is our heavenly Father in whom we can trust. Thirdly, I'm not used to people clapping at 9 o'clock, so this has thrown me off. (laughs) No, 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 no. That wasn't an endorsement of clapping. So I I think I prefer… I'll leave it there, actually. Thirdly, Peter wants to remind us and respond to the scoffers with the fact that God is merciful in patience. Patience seems to be a forgotten quality these days. We just celebrated Thanksgiving here, and we may have shared about the things that the things and the, the, the people that we are thankful for. One of the things that I'm more and more aware of and thankful for is the people who are patient with me. Just think for a moment of a person or people who didn't give you what you deserved, but were patient with you. They didn't give up on you right away when they could have, but they were patient. Instead, they exhibited the fruit of the Spirit in patience. It's such a wonderful thing, especially in these impatient days that we live in. In verse 9, Peter supports his teaching on the second coming by appealing to the character of God. The thrust of his argument in verse 9 is this. 
The reason Christ's return is not immediate is because God is patient with sinners. God is waiting due to His graciousness and long-suffering. It's not because He is uh, indefinite or, or powerless or distracted. No, the opposite is true. Because He is merciful, because He is forbearing, He delays so that the elect sinners come to repentance. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this verse. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. Is this talking about God's basic uh, description towards man? As in God does not delight in the death of the wicked or the the punishment of the evildoers, uh, yet he still issues their punishment, but his doing so is almost like a just judge sentencing sentencing his son to prison. He he doesn't do it with joy. Or is this talking about God's perceptive will, like, uh, like his law? In order, for example, he, he decrees it, but we still break it. Is that what this is talking about? Or is this talking about God's sovereign will? Whatever he wills must come to pass. Well, I think here this verse describes God's sovereign will because of the context of what's happening here. This is his decretive will. Whatever he wills must come to pass. Why? How? How do you see that? Because Peter says, he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Some translations say, because he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that anyone should perish. The any or anyone refers to the you or us. So Peter is saying, God's will is that none of his elect will perish but come to repentance. Peter sets out his letter in chapter 1, as any good letter does. He sets it out clearly who he is writing to. Listen to what he says in in 2 Peter 1, verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to the elect. Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He will not destroy the earth and come in judgment until the full number of the elect are saved. That may upset some of you, but I would argue that you don't have a proper view of divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. I'll save that for another day. No, actually, I'll let Dad do that one. (laughs) But if you do have this proper understanding of what that means, of the weight of what that means, what an act of mercy and patience it is on God's part. Three responses to scoffers. Three Reminders to believers. God creates, upholds, and judges by His Word. God is infinite in His existence. God is merciful in His patience. Then we read in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. There are a number of ways to describe the return of Christ in judgment, but Peter uses words of destruction here, emphasizing that everything will be burned up. Why? Well, because he saw ahead to the year 2020. Now, it's because it shows the fruitlessness of what the false teachers are proclaiming, which is, Christ is not returning, therefore do what pleases you. There will be no final judgment, therefore you do you. Live it up, there will be no consequences. Peter says, everything, everything, everything will be laid bare the accumulation of possessions, the things that stand between us and looking forward with anticipation to Christ's return will be revealed for what they are, empty. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? This is the so what part of this section. Okay, Peter, so what? Now that we know that the Lord will return, now that we know that He will return only when His called ones respond to Him, and we know that all temporary worthless things will pass away, what should we do? We are told to live holy lives. Meaning what exactly? It means we live as people who have been set aside for God which means that you are set aside for His use. When your tongue is set aside, you will bless and not curse. When your money is set aside, you use it for God's glory and not frivolously. When your time is set aside, you spend it serving, encouraging, and lifting others up, living a godly and a holy life but you also live your life expectantly of the return of the Lord. Please hear me right. I can't believe I just used that phrase. Oh, man. Too many. Uh, I am not preaching perfectionism. What I am preaching is sanctification that process by which God is conforming us more and more and more and more and more into the likeness of His Son. And we are submitting more and more and more and more to His will and authority in our lives. Two motivations God gives for our sanctification. One, that the earth and all its vain accomplishments of man are going to be burnt up and only the fruits of holiness will remain. That's a good reason. Second, that the promise of the new heavens and the new earth shines so bright with God's righteousness and glory, how can we not walk in the light? There's a story of how confident a believer was regarding the day of judgment. His name was Colonel Abraham Davenport, he was the Speaker of the House of the Connecticut House of Representatives in, in 1780. On May 19th of that year, the sky in New England 
went dark. It went completely black. And the darkness extended all the way up to Canada. And so people began to panic, for they did not know why the sky had turned black all of a sudden in the middle of the day. Well, eventually they discovered the cause was a major forest fire, but the majority of people at the time, they thought it was the day of judgment. And the Connecticut House of Representatives was meeting that day in Hartford, Connecticut, and many of the representatives wanted to suspend the, their meeting because it got so dark that they could not even see, they could not continue to do business as usual. And many of them feared that the end of the world was at hand, and they wanted to be home. They shouted to the speaker, adjourn this meeting immediately, adjourn this meeting immediately. And the speaker was so confident in his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he replied, I will not adjourn. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, then there's no need to adjourn. If it is, I choose to be found doing my work. Therefore, bring candles. One of the ways that we are godly and holy and waiting for the coming of Christ is by being, by being bringers of the good news. There are far too many people who believe in a Christless heaven and far too many who believe that there will be no judgment and far too many who think that this is heaven. So let us be faithful with our lives. Let us be faithful in our witness as well. The world is a dark place. That's not news to you. So may the church be a light in the darkness as we await the coming again and finally of the light of heaven, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes this can feel so distant from us because those words of the scoffers begin to seep into our hearts and minds. Where is this coming? We've heard about it all these days, and yet it never comes. So, Father, would these words of your apostle Peter serve as a reminder to us of its reality? Would it serve us in spurring us on to love and good deeds? Would it serve as a reminder to us that this is not our home? We are passing through, but we're not called to pass through and live on the mountaintops just waiting, but we are passing through and we've been given orders through our Redeemer and Savior that we occupy till you come, that we work honestly and diligently, that we share this word of good news, that we would have an awareness of the lostness of our world around us, that our mouths would have the words of Christ on them. Our lips would be speaking truth into darkness and allowing that light to penetrate
For we know, Lord, that that day won't come until all of your elect have come into your house. So we do say, come, Lord Jesus. But we also know what you've called us to, that we wait patiently, that we work diligently, that we live faithfully. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll stay together and listen.